On December 23, 1927, Cisco, a small town in central Texas, became the center of one of the largest manhunts in history. An ex-con named Marshall Ratliff dressed up in a borrowed Santa costume, along with fellow ex-cons Henry Helms and Robert Hill, and a last-minute addition, Louis Davis, a relative of Helms, the gang of four stole a blue car in Wichita Falls and drove to Cisco with a master plan. People are born and die every day. Billions around the world are celebrating Christmas. Some have the honor or misfortune of passing during the Yuletide. Welcome to another episode of The Last Word, a true life podcast that asks, what is the significance of a person's dying words and what is their impact on those left behind? I'm your host, Sarah Faith. Each episode, I will explore themes of life and death. Some stories may be well known to you, others may not. Join me as I shine a light on crimes and spirits of Christmas past. You can find me on Facebook at Sarah Faith Larson and on Twitter at Sarah Loves Words. Now, grab a warm blanket and your favorite drink, throw another log on the fire because Christmas is here again. One of the hostages was Bank President Alex Spears. In the chaos, most of the hostages escaped. The bank robbers kept two girls as hostages, though. Laverne Comer, age 12, and Emma May Robertson, age 10, were used as human shields as the robbers fled the scene. The deputy, George Carmichael, took a bullet from one of the fugitives. Officer Reddy's went to the aid of his fellow officer, the gang made a run for their getaway car through a hail of ammunition. Blocking the alley was Chief Bedford. He did not go down without a fight. It took five bullets to bring down this 25-year veteran of the force. He died in the hospital on Christmas Day. His deputy, Officer Carmichael, died a month later on January 17th. Six other civilians were wounded. Helms, Hill, and Davis dropped off Ratliff in full Santa suit on Main Street, where excited children followed after him. He answered their questions with a smile and a pat on the head. Around noon, he rendezvoused with his friends in a nearby alley. The children followed Santa and his merry band of robbers into the First National Bank of Cisco. At this time, bank robberies occurred on the daily in Texas, sometimes three a day. The Texas Bankers Association offered a $5,000 bounty to anyone shooting a robber in the act. That was a lot of cash almost a century ago, two years before the stock market crashed. The cashier greeted Ratliff with a friendly, Hello, Santa! He did not respond, but proceeded to the deposit slip island in the middle of the bank. The cashier called out to Ratliff again with no response. That's when his accomplice, Robert Hill, pointed a pistol at the cashier and yelled, Hands up! Helms and Davis brandished their guns now. An eyewitness named Boyce House recalled it was 
the most spectacular crime in the history of the Southwest, surpassing any which Billy the Kid or the James Boys had ever figured. All eyes were on Ratliff as he pushed through the swinging door past the cashier's desk, straight into the cashier's cage. There he withdrew a pistol hidden in a drawer beneath the counter. Santa wasted no time ordering an employee to fill a bag with cash and bonds. Then he forced an employee to open a vault while his three armed cohorts kept eyes on everyone else. But someone got by them. Mrs. Blassingame and her six-year-old daughter, Frances, entered the bank to catch a glimpse of Santa. It didn't take long for her to realize she'd walked in on a robbery in progress. She pulled her daughter through the bank to the side door that opened to the alley. By now, the robbers had spotted the mother and daughter. They threatened to shoot her as she passed by the bookkeeper's office. Mrs. Blassingame alerted them that the bank was being robbed. She burst into the alley, shouting for the police. She and her daughter ran the block to City Hall and the police department, alerting everyone she encountered on her way. Remember our eyewitness, Boy's House? Here is what he had to say about the sheriff's response to the Santa holding up the First National Bank. Police Chief Bit Bedford was a giant of a man and a veteran police officer. Armed with a riot gun, the chief gave orders to his officers to cover the entrances and took post in the alleyway. Inside the bank, things had heated up. While one of his cohorts shouted at a bookkeeper, Don't look at me! Santa Claus exited the vault with a bag full of Christmas loot. One customer escaped and informed the authorities of the situation inside the bank. The robbers ordered the hostages, some of them wounded, to file out through the door towards their stolen getaway car. One of the hostages was the bank president, Alex Spears. In the chaos, most of the hostages escaped. The bank robbers kept two girls as hostages. Laverne Comer, age 12, and Emma May Robertson, age 10, and used them as human shields as they fled the scene. The deputy, George Carmichael, took a bullet from one of the fugitives. Officer Reddys went to the aid of his fellow officer. The gang made a run for their getaway car through a hail of ammunition. Blocking the alley was Chief Bedford. He did not go down without a fight. It took five bullets to bring down this 25-year veteran of the force. He died in the hospital on Christmas Day. His deputy, Officer Carmichael, died a month later on January 17th. Six other civilians were wounded. The fugitives had not escaped unharmed. Ratliff, or Santa, had been shot in the chin and the leg. Lewis Davis had been severely wounded. A last-minute add-on, he struggled to support his family and had never before committed a crime. In a scene right out of Stupid Criminals, their getaway car ran out of gas because they had forgotten to fill it prior to robbing the bank. Shadowed by the angry mob from Main Street, the gang hunted down a new ride. Joined by an armed civilian, Officer Reddys had obtained a rifle and continued his pursuit on foot. One of the officers shot at a tire. The car stopped and the robbers erupted out of the doors and pointed their guns at a passing car. 14-year-old Woodrow Wilson Harris must have been scared out of his mind when Santa jumped out in front of his car and demanded it. 
Quicker than Santa can deliver presents on Christmas Eve, the robbers transferred the loot, the hostages, and their wounded comrade Davis to the new getaway car. Woodrow was young, but he wasn't stupid. He had relinquished the car, but not the keys. Davis had lost consciousness, so they abandoned him there. They took the hostages back to the first car. The gun battle raged on. Hill took a bullet during one of the getaway car transfers. Not until later did it dawn on the trio that they had forgotten Santa's bag of money in the abandoned car with Davis, who was probably dead. The mob gave up chase when they discovered the abandoned car, the money, and Davis. They returned the stolen $12,400 in cash and $150,000 in non-negotiable securities to the bank. The bank had been peppered with an estimated 200 bullets. Davis died from his wounds in a hospital in Fort Worth. The trio raced back down Avenue D near the bank and took a hard turn onto a dirt road. One drove while the other two shot at their pursuers and hurled roofing nails at them in hopes of blowing out their tires. The car turned down an overgrown pasture. About two miles from town, their escape route was impassable with overgrowth. They abandoned the car and their two hostages. According to Boy's House, officers and citizens poured in from all that section of the state and such a manhut as Western Texas had never seen before was soon in progress. Many members of the posse were on horseback or on foot as they beat their way through clumps of trees, searched high grass in the bottoms of ravines, and peered around boulders and canyons. The discovery of an overcoat, blood-stained gloves and rags, and a suitcase full of first-aid necessities by search parties indicated the gang was prepared for bloodshed. These are the same guys who forgot to gas up the getaway car, but they brought a first aid kit. Wow. Despite their best efforts, the search parties lost track of the fugitives. The search continued through Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. The trio knew that fleeing on foot was less than ideal. They hijacked another vehicle. This one was driven by a young driller named Carl Wiley. The trio forced Wiley to drive. Wiley's father shot at the vehicle as they fled. That shot struck his son. Hiding out that night was rough. Injured, tired, pissed off, and paranoid, they had nothing to eat but oranges, which they did not share with Carl, their injured hostage. They hatched a plan to return to Cisco and hide in plain sight. They released their injured hostage and his vehicle and hunted a new ride. Ice and sleet slowed down the men who were depleted from their injuries and lack of nutrition. Christmas morning, the trio was spotted crossing the Brazos River. When they saw the officers and the posse from town were armed, the men backed up. The posse and the officers got back into their cars and chased after the bandits through an oil field. A full-blown car chase ended in a shootout with the fugitives. One deputy sheriff involved was Cy Bradford, Texas Ranger and legendary lawman. Bradford's car had not come to a full stop before he was out of it. Armed with his double-barrel shotgun, he named Old Betsy. He fired and one of the robbers went down. He reloaded and shot at the two who continued to retreat on foot and fire over their shoulders at their pursuers. 
One went down but staggered back up. The officer reloaded and shot again. Another went down. He too got back up and ran on. Ratliff went down. Hill and Helms escaped into the woods by the Brazos River. Santa was caught with six pistols, including the one he'd stolen from the bank. He had no less than six gunshot wounds. December 30th in Graham, Texas, Hill and Helms were caught with a total of seven firearms when a private citizen phoned in a tip. They were hungry and injured, but both lived to stand trial. After an unsuccessful insanity defense, Helms was executed by electric chair on September 6, 1929, for the shooting of two law officers. Hill pled guilty to armed robbery, even taking the stand in his own defense. He cried and begged for mercy. He was sentenced to 99 years in prison. He escaped not once, but three times. He was paroled in the 1940s after chilling out on the prison breaks. It seemed he changed his name and became a productive citizen. He passed away in 1996. January 27, 1928, Ratliff, Santa, was convicted of armed robbery. Like his accomplice, he was sentenced to 99 years in prison. Perhaps it was the testimony of 10-year-old Emma Mae Robinson that she had been kidnapped by Santa after he robbed the bank. Following his sentencing, on his walk back to his cell, he was heard saying, That's no hill for a high stepper like me. In spite of the fact that no witnesses could testify seeing Santa fire his weapon, on March 30th, he was sentenced to death for the shootings of Deputy Carmichael and Police Chief Bedford. Ratliff appealed and even sought an insanity plea. When all that failed, his own mother filed an insanity hearing. But the citizens of Eastland County were having none of it. Why was Ratliff still alive? He should have been executed already. A judge ordered that Ratliff be extradited to Eastland County Jail for the theft of the Oldsmobile. I don't know about you, but my impression of this criminal Santa has evoked images of Bruce Willis, Liam Neeson, or Jason Statham as Ratliff, the unstoppable villain, always one step ahead of the law. While awaiting execution at Eastland County Jail, he faked paralysis, completely duped the deputies, Jones and Kilborn, into feeding and bathing him. Ratliff managed to obtain a six-shooter, which he used to fatally wound Jones. He engaged Kilburn in a hand-to-hand -hand combat and managed to get off two shots that were no good. Townsfolk crowded to see into the jail as Kilborn overpowered Ratliff and beat him into unconsciousness. Overnight, a mob of 2,000 formed outside the jail, all hungry for Ratliff's head on a cookie sheet. Kilborn refused the crowd's demands to serve up Ratliff for some old-fashioned vigilante justice. Kilborn lost control of the situation when a group of 15 to 20 rushed the jail and overpowered him. Hands and feet bound, the mob carried out Ratliff to the street behind the Majestic Theater where a popular play called The Noose was being presented. That's where they set up a makeshift gallows and planned to hang Ratliff. Their first attempt failed when the knot came loose and Ratliff crashed down to the ground. 
They got it right the second time, stringing him up 15 feet with stronger rope. What were the Santa Claus bank robber's last words? Forgive me, boys. It took 20 minutes for him to die. He was pronounced dead at 9.55, November 19, 1928. That night, Deputy Jones, who had been shot in the jail by Ratliff, died. A grand jury was formed to investigate the lynching of Ratliff, but no one was ever brought to trial for their participation. His body had been laid out at a furniture store. Reports said that thousands came to view his body before the judge ordered the corpse removed. The family claimed the body and arranged for him to be buried in Fort Worth. The greatest manhunt in the history of West Texas had ended. The celebrated trials had been the last held at the old courthouse. It was demolished soon after. The First National Bank is in a new building now. There is a painting that depicts the robbery that hangs alongside newspaper clippings and photos from the period. A commemorative plaque outside the bank reads, Scene of Daring Santa Claus Bank Robbery, December 23, 1927. During Christmas festivities, costume Santa and three fellow bandits looted bank of $12,000 cash and $150,000 in securities. They escaped through gun battle with two little girls as hostages. A three-day manhunt followed. The children and money were recovered. The robbers captured. Six persons were killed, eight injured. Later, a mob lynched Santa when he broke out of jail. Recorded Texas Landmark. 1967. When I come back, I'll share a Hollywood rags to riches story that led to an unusual kidnapping. Called a monument of the cinema and the most beautiful gift the cinema made to us. By age 29, Charlie Chaplin was an international star far beyond the poverty of his childhood. The pioneer of the silent film era received an honorary Academy Award in 1972 for the incalculable effect he has made in making motion pictures the art form of this century. He lived in pursuit of perfection and was up to his little mustache and scandals. When the FBI opened an investigation against Chaplin in 1953, he relocated to Switzerland. Of his exit, he said, I have been the object of lies and propaganda by powerful reactionary groups who, by their influence and by the aid of America's yellow press, have created an unhealthy atmosphere in which liberal-minded individuals can be singled out and persecuted. Under these conditions, I find it virtually impossible to continue my motion picture work, and I have therefore given up my residence in the United States. Chaplin's popularity in the U.S. was unprecedented. Biographer Charles Milland wrote that Chaplin's fall may be the most dramatic in the history of stardom in America. I'll point out that Milland's biography, Chaplin and American Culture, was published in 1991. We can all agree that Chaplin lived a remarkable life, but what happened after his death is extraordinary. 
By 1977, he was 88 years old and in failing health. Chaplin passed away in Switzerland early Christmas morning. On December 27th, Chaplin was interred at Corsier-sur-Vivay Cemetery. Actor Bob Hope said, We were lucky to have lived in his time. On March 1st, 1978, Chaplin's coffin was dug up and his body stolen. One of the robbers, who went by the alias Mr. Rochat, attempted to collect $600,000 in ransom via telephone from Chaplin's widow, Una, who had just inherited $100 million. She refused to pay, stating that her husband would have found it all rather ridiculous. Mr. Rochat then made threats against Chaplin's two youngest children. A five-week police investigation located Chaplin's body buried in a cornfield beside Lake Geneva, one mile from his home. His remains were reinterred in a secured tomb. Police captured the grave robbers, a pair of political refugees from Eastern Europe working as auto mechanics. Down on his luck, 24-year-old Roman Wardus hatched a plan after reading about a similar case in Italy. Wardus said work was hard to come by as an immigrant, and he had no qualms about grave desecration. He recruited his friend, Gancho Ganev, age 38, to help him dig up Chaplin's coffin. Ganev said, I was not bothered about lifting the coffin. Death is not so important where I come from. He claimed he helped with logistics but had no part in the ransom calls. He became alarmed when the case blew up in the media. Wardus was sentenced to four and a half years of hard labor. Ganev received an 18-month suspended sentence for his limited involvement. Both men penned letters of apology to Una. Look, Una replied to a letter from one of the thieves' mothers, I have nothing especially against you, and all is forgiven. When I come back, I'll take a look at the tragic murder that spawned the book The Death of Innocence. Stay with me. John Benet Ramsey was born August 6, 1990, in Atlanta to John and Patsy Ramsey. The family relocated to Boulder, Colorado, where little John Benet was crowned Little Miss Colorado and National Tiny Miss Beauty, among others. On December 23, 1996, police receive a 911 call from the Ramsey home. But later, the call is dismissed as a mistaken call by a drunken guest. On December 25th, John Benet receives a new bike for Christmas. The Ramses attend a Christmas party at the home of family friend Fleet White. They return home that night and put John Benet to bed. December 26th, just after midnight, a neighbor notices the kitchen light on at the Ramsey house. It has been argued that the little girl got out of bed and sneaked downstairs where she had an argument with her brother Burke over a late night snack of pineapple. This was later verified. 
5.30 a.m. on December 26th, Patsy goes into the kitchen to make coffee, and there on the back stairs, she discovers a two-and-a-half-page handwritten ransom note from someone who claimed to have kidnapped John Bonet. The note claims that John Bonet has been kidnapped by, quote, a group of individuals that represent a small foreign faction, end quote. The note gave specific instructions to withdraw $118,000, which was the same amount as John's Christmas bonus. The note promised John, you stand a 99% chance of killing your daughter if you try to outsmart us. Although the writer of the letter said John Bonet would be beheaded if the Ramses contacted authorities, Patsy called 911. Officer Rick French arrives in under 30 minutes and searches the home. He reportedly pauses by a particular door that leads to the basement, but he leaves it unopened. At 10.30 a.m., John Ramsey goes missing for an hour. Allegedly, he went to get the mail, but their mail was always delivered through the slot in the front door. So where did he go? At 1 p.m., Detective Arndt notifies John and his friend Fleet White that they are conducting a search of the house. The two men join in on the search. They are told that the home has been searched top to bottom. It only took five minutes for John to discover his daughter's body in a place police appeared to have overlooked. The girl's skull was fractured and a garret was fastened around her neck. Her mouth and neck were bound with duct tape. That's when John opened the door Officer French had neglected to open hours earlier. He found the body of his daughter. He picked her up and ran screaming upstairs, leaving the basement door open behind him. The crime scene was contaminated and her body had been moved to the living room. At 10.45, the coroner collected her body. 1.30 p.m., Police announce again that they have secured the home. The Ramsey family is advised not to leave town. Meanwhile, John Ramsey is overheard calling his pilot to arrange a flight to Atlanta. December 31st, the little girl's body is returned to Marietta, Georgia, where she is buried next to her older sister who had died in a car accident in 1992. The family remained in Georgia and the investigation followed them there. Authorities were eager to speak to the family who had agreed to a 45-minute interview with CNN after claiming to be too grief-stricken to speak with investigators. A media circus surrounded the family, the police, and anyone who might have insight into the high-profile case. In the TV interview, Patsy warned the parents of Boulder to keep their babies close to them because there was a killer on the loose. She added that the Ramses were good Christians who would do anything for their family. January 7th, news reports that a preliminary or practice ransom note has been discovered. February 27th, John Benet's half-brother John Andrew is interviewed, though he was not in town at the time of the murder. March 7th, expert handwriting analysis revealed that John has been eliminated as the author of the note, but there's a chance Patsy may have written it. 
The next day, authorities searched the Michigan summer home in search of unrehearsed examples of Patty's handwriting. DNA is tested and retested, but results are not made public. April 19th, this is still 1997, the parents become the prime suspects. Police conduct hours of formal interviews with John and Patsy. Boulder's district attorney, Alex Hunter, said, obviously the focus is on these two people. New statements replace the ones collected immediately after the murder. July 14th, seven months after the murder, the autopsy results are released. According to CNN, a deep ligature around the victim's neck and another around the right wrist evidence she was bound and strangled. She was struck on the head violently enough to cause bleeding and an eight and a half inch fracture to her skull. The report also confirmed that she had been sexually assaulted. January 1998. It's been more than a year since their child died. The Ramses are not cooperating with authorities. After two months, John and Patsy finally surrendered their clothes from the night in question. Two shirts, a pair of pants, and a sweater. March 12, 1998, a grand jury is convened. June 1998, John Benet's older brother, Burke, age 11 now, is interviewed for the first time. Mark Beckner, the lead investigator, said that they have significant results from the 1,500-plus pieces of evidence recovered from the Ramsey home. Police did not share the results. August 6, 1998, Detective Steve Thomas writes an eight-page letter of resignation stating that D.A. Hunter's office, quote, crippled the case and elements have been, quote, thoroughly compromised. The governor asks if he needs to step in. Two weeks later, White, the family friend who hosted the party the night before John Bonet was murdered, and the friend who was with John when he discovered John Bonet, asked that someone replace D.A. Hunter on the Ramsey case. The governor steps in. August 20th, police reveal that John Bonet's brother's voice can be heard multiple times in the background of Patsy's 911 call, but the original report stated that Burke was asleep at the time. September 24, 1998, homicide detective Lou Smith submits his letter of resignation stating that the investigation was wrongly focused on the family and that, quote, a very dangerous killer is out there. This provides leverage in the Ramsey's continued fight to convince authorities to shift the focus of their investigation away from the family. October 20th, grand jury begins hearing evidence that included DNA, hair, and fibers from the scene. Nine days later, the grand jury tours the home in Boulder. The National Enquirer stated two anonymous sources accused photographer Steve Miles of the murder. John Ramsey returns to Colorado to face Miles in a civil case. December 3rd, two years after the murder, DNA is collected in an effort to rule out family members. March 18, 1999, Detective Arndt, the first detective on the scene who declared to John and his friend Fleet White that the house had been checked from top to bottom just before they discovered the body, resigns over criticism. May 1999, 
After being secretly questioned by a grand jury, Burke, John Bonnet's older brother, is officially declared a witness only. September 13th, Detective Arndt, who resigned from the case in March, speaks to Good Morning America. She says she knows who the killer is but won't reveal any names. Two weeks later, John, Andrew, and Melinda, older siblings of John Bonnet, testify before the grand jury. October 13th, District Attorney Alex Hunter says there is not sufficient evidence to charge anyone with John Bonnet's murder. Five months later, the Ramses publish The Death of Innocence, a book that they wrote about the murder. May 2000, the Ramses announced they have passed polygraph tests and declare themselves innocent. However, the tests weren't administered by the FBI and are therefore unacceptable to authorities. June 2006, Patsy dies of ovarian cancer at age 49. She is buried in Marietta next to John Bonet. August 16, 2006, a new name takes the stage in the never-ending circus of an investigation. John Mark Carr, age 41. The former substitute teacher had been dismissed in Alabama in 1996 for being overly affectionate with children and was arrested in 2001 on child pornography charges. Parents complained and he was let go. At the time of his arrest in Bangkok, Carr had just taken a position there as a second grade teacher. Carr was arrested on suspicion of murder. He was obsessed with John Bonet. The media nearly self-destructed, though, when Carr's confession was proven false. He was branded an attention-seeking pedophile who confessed to John Bonet's murder to be part of the story and wallow in the attention. The charges related to the pornography and involvement in John Bonet's murder were dropped. In 2007, he was arrested following a domestic dispute in Atlanta with his girlfriend. In 2010, he was wanted by police again for stalking and cult-related activities. But he was hard to find because he was living under an assumed female identity. Gender reassignment or clever disguise? Who knows? Things are about to get really weird. Buckle up. Samantha Spiegel says she met Carr 10 years ago at Sacred Heart Catholic School in San Francisco. He was a teacher's aide in her fourth grade class. She was nine. When she was 17, she saw Carr on TV for a court hearing and contacted him. She says they formed an intense internet relationship. After thousands of emails, Spiegel claims Carr convinced her that she was special to him and it was her destiny to be recruited into his cult he called the Immaculates. Spiegel says that Carr is attempting to create a cult of John Bonet lookalikes. Little girls as young as four with tiny feet. She alleges that when a little girl he recruited to help him recruit other little girls, escaped his influence, Carr threatened to harm the child. Carr proposed marriage to Spiegel, but her parents intervened by sending her to rehab for 18 months with the hope of shielding her from Carr's influence. It didn't stop him from trying. 
For two years, he demanded that she continue to recruit little girls for his cult. When she emerged from rehab, he was living as a woman he called Delia Alexis Reich. When Spiegel didn't connect with Carr's new identity, he began threatening her. He said that if I got in the way of his little girls, he would hunt me down and have me killed. In her opinion, Carr is living as a woman to get close to little girls. In court, she produced an email from Carr that read, I want to hurt you. If you deceive me, I will kill you. I know where you live. A police investigation revealed that Carr, or Reich, had managed to amass 30 followers. This is as far as I'm going down this rabbit hole of utter madness. In 2008, DNA from a third party is detected on JonBenet's clothing, clearing family members. In 2010, police in Boulder conducted a fresh round of interviews. January 27, 2013, an article in the Boulder Daily Camera reports that the grand jury in 1999 voted to indict John and Patsy Ramsey on charges of child abuse resulting in death, but District Attorney Hunter said they lacked sufficient evidence and he did not sign the indictment. September 12, 2016. Remember the older brother named Burke? He finally speaks out about his sister's murder. In an interview with Dr. Phil, Burke says twice, it was probably some pedophile in the pageant audience. Three months later, a docu-series about the murder airs on CBS. It suggests that Burke was the culprit. Burke files a $250 million defamation lawsuit against the production company, the network, and Dr. Werner Spitz, an expert featured in the series. This is followed by a similar suit by John Ramsey. January 2019, Judge David Groner of Michigan Circuit Court signs an order to dismiss the defamation order filed by Burke against CBS following an undisclosed settlement. Court records show that similar settlement agreements were reached on the same day in John Ramsey's separate defamation suits. That month, another false confession surfaces from a man who had been cleared previously of involvement. Gary Oliva, a known sex offender in the Boulder area at the time of John Benet's murder, was arrested in 2000 on drug charges. Police found a magazine cutout of John Benet in his backpack. He was released and arrested again in 2016. He is serving out a 10-year sentence for child abuse. A former classmate and music publicist, Michael Vail, claimed to have received letters where Oliva confessed to murdering Jean Benet. Excerpts were run in the Daily Mail UK. He says, I never loved anyone like I did John Bonet, and yet I let her slip and her head bashed in half, and I watched her die. It was an accident, please believe me. She was not like the other kids. John Bonet completely changed me and removed all evil from me. Just one look at her beautiful face, her glowing, beautiful skin, and her divine God body, I realized I was wrong to kill other kids. Yet by accident, she died, and it was my fault. 
Vale also told the Daily Mail, My suspicions began when Gary called me late at night on December 26, 1996. He was sobbing and said, I heard a little girl. Vale claims he attempted to share his suspicions with Boulder police, but was unable to reach them. Boulder City spokeswoman Sarah Huntley told Crimesider, There was a point in time in the investigation when it's fair to say he was a suspect. But authorities say DNA from the scene didn't match Oliva. Was this another false confession? Guess what else they found in his backpack? A stun gun, which authorities believe the killer used to disable John Bonet. Gary Oliva is scheduled to be released October 3rd, 2025. December 20th, 2021. Last week. 25 years after a little girl was murdered, the city of Boulder released a statement that they have processed over 1,500 pieces of evidence and analyzed close to 1,000 DNA samples in relation to John Bonet's murder. Boulder Police Department are actively using new technology to enhance the investigation, and they check regularly for DNA matches. The Sun ran an article a couple of days ago featuring some quotes from John Bonet's older brother, John Andrew. Regarding the investigation and possible suspects, he said, they still think Patsy did it. No one has ever been charged in John Bonet's homicide. Christopher Eberhardt's article states it is suspected that Patsy, who was also a beauty pageant queen, may have killed John Bonet after a bedwetting incident smashing the young girl's head on a blunt surface. Investigators point to the paintbrush from Patsy's paint kit had been used in a homemade garret to tighten a rope around John Bonet's neck. The bizarre two-and-a-half-page ransom note left in the home on Christmas Day was also written on a piece of paper from Patsy's stationery, using her own pen, yet handwriting analysis found it inconclusive that Patty wrote the note. So who did it? Whatever the theories, no one is awaiting trial and no one is incarcerated for the murder of a six-year-old girl. And that may never change. John Benet Ramsey was an innocent child who deserved justice. I hope she gets it. Thanks for joining me for another episode of The Last Word. You can find me on Facebook at Sarah Faith Larson and Twitter at Sarah Loves Words. If you have a deathbed confession, true crime, missing person case, or fascinating last words to share, send them in. I might use them in a future episode. If you enjoyed this or any of my episodes, please share them on social media. This helps raise the podcast visibility. As always, be kind to one another. Have a safe and happy holiday season.